Welcome to the Upbeat Podcast, powered by CoChart, a show that's dedicated to providing resources for families impacted by childhood chronic illness. For articles, videos, and show notes, visit our platform at theupbeat.cochart.org. Welcome, everybody, to the Upbeat Podcast. I am Greg Harrell Edge, the host of the Upbeat and the executive director of CoChart, a nonprofit that does free arts and athletics lessons for kids impacted by chronic illnesses currently in LA, the Bay Area, and San Diego. And we have officially chosen the five new cities that we're launching ambassador chapters in to start the process of launching in those cities. So this is the first Upbeat episode where we can officially announce uh, we've started the process of expanding to Chicago, Dallas, Denver, New York City, and Portland, which is really exciting. And if you're listening and want to get involved in any of those cities, please visit our website, cochart.org. My guest today is Madison McLaughlin, a young woman who shoots arrows, hunts monsters, and gets bitten by werewolves, or at least her characters do. She moved to LA at age 11 to pursue her career in acting, and today she's best known for roles on the NBC series Chicago PD and on the CW series Supernatural and Arrow. She's best known to us at CoChart because two of her three little sisters have a rare genetic disease, most commonly referred to as HBSL, which we'll ask her about in just a second, which affects the brain and spinal cord and impairs motor function. She's active with a lot of nonprofits, including Shane's Inspiration, Global Genes, and then us at CoChart. Madison, thank you so much for joining us on The Upbeat. Thank you so much for having me. I am beyond honored to get to be here. We are beyond honored to have you. So as we mentioned, we, even at CoChart, always end up just using HBSL mm-hmm. as the acronym for your uh, two sisters' diagnoses. Can you give us the full official name and a little bit of the background of it? Sure. How much time do you have? Um, <laughs> the, the official name is hypomyelination of the brain and spinal cord with spasticity in the lower limbs, which is why we go with HBSL. It's a bit easier to say, not quite as intimidating. Um, it's very, very rare. There's about 19 people that are diagnosed as of right now worldwide. And my sisters are two of them. And uh, my other sister is a carrier. So we're a big HBSL family. We've been working since the beginning. My sisters actually validated the disease along with um, a young boy named Massimo who is living in Australia. And so we've been a part of this. We got the diagnosis in 2013 and we've been, um, we've been, you know, just kind of learning as we go, working with our doctors ever since. For the girls, how it presents in them specifically is um, they do use wheelchairs for mobility but they still have, as you guys know, full reign um, cognitively. And so for CoChart, as you know, we serve kids with any diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And so for us, 27% of the diagnoses, the most common by far, are cancer diagnoses. 6% of the kids in the program have what are considered rare illnesses, um, as your sisters would qualify for. Uh, and so we end up having a lot of kids in the program who have diagnoses that there's not an entire nonprofit organization created to serve them. On this podcast, we always talk about the social and emotional element of dealing with a diagnosis. What are some of the ways that you think the social and emotional journey is different for the individuals and for the entire family when your diagnosis is a really rare one, as opposed to something like a cancer diagnosis that people are more familiar with? 
It's very interesting. In our, in our beginning of our journey, we didn't know anybody else with a rare disease. And um, it really takes a toll on you mentally. Of course, it, it provides a lot of limitations as to like how you can raise money for research and for different types of grants, even for equipment and treatment that the girls would have to have. But mentally, it really takes a toll too, because it doesn't really allow as much of a support system to be built. But we found um, an organization called Global Genes, and they kind of act as this hub for a bunch of rare diseases. And they have just done a phenomenal job of creating this really true community. They have events throughout the year. They have a really big um, weekend every fall where it's a big summit. People come and you can listen to panels of different doctors and scientists and research and patients and advocates and parents. And um, that has given us a really, really huge sense of community. And there's a lot when you're dealing with a rare disease and there's so little information out there you as the families and as the patients really end up being the biggest advocate and the biggest voice. And um, that has been really empowering and inspiring to see other patients and other families who are doing the same thing and they're in the fight with you. And even though you might not have the same rare disease, you all are in the same community. And that has been, a, it's just made a world of difference for my family. It's interesting because one thing with this podcast is we really sort of thought, thought of two different elements of, of the journey and the kind of medical and the social and emotional that, that we were mm -hmm. just talking about. But in a way that sort of is right in between them where it sounds like while you don't share the same medical journey as other people with, with rare diagnoses, you share the same social and emotional medical path of trying to fight for, for more funding, trying to fight for, you know, that, that it is sort of an in-between space with that. Completely. And even with that, you are sharing stories of, you know, with people who might have rare diseases that are similar to yours with other, uh, with other leukodystrophies and things, you are sharing different treatments and um, therapies that, you know, worked for you with them and vice versa. So there is still a sense of sharing medical information with each other gotcha. just to kind of, you know, be like, oh, hey, you know what, this, this one therapy really worked for us. You guys should, should try it. And it's the same thing with equipment. It's like, oh, well, we found this, this thing for the wheelchair that's been super helpful. Mm -hmm. or we found this bath mm -hmm. chair that's been amazing. And so it does provide that sense of community. But it's for me personally as kind of a caregiver and a big sister and an advocate, what I found is I have found other, especially young women there who I can call when things are just so overwhelming. And when you've been in the hospital for two months and nobody knows what's wrong and nobody knows how to fix whatever the problem even is, they can't even figure out what the problem even is. And so what's been so amazing is to be able to pick up the phone and call somebody who gets it and who can just kind of sit with you and be like, yeah, dude, it sucks. And by mm -hmm. them giving you that sense of community and just being there and by you being able to give that to them when they need it, it has really, I mean, this sounds dramatic, but it has really been life-changing for us. And That's through fantastic. Global Genes, I also found there's an organization called Sick Chicks and it was put together by a teenage girl who created this entire community for girls and women with chronic illness to wow. kind of provide the same type of of community. And that's, that's huge. I mean, there's only so much that doctors and your medical team can provide you with. Sometimes you just need to call somebody at two in the morning and cry because you're overwhelmed, you know, yeah. and, and that's a huge, 
part, even coach heart has been so wonderful to see my sisters build bonds with other kids. My mom build bonds with other parents to be able to have that sense of community mm-hmm. and be able to have a, have a, a similar interest with somebody that isn't anything to do with your sickness, be able to be like, mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I love doing improv with you. Let's do this every week and stuff like that. That has been so cool to see. Yeah. And Marissa is an absolute star at improv. Mm-hmm. Um, and she her really role is. at the, at the um, as a co-host of the gala was, was absolutely incredible and something I'll never it forget. It was amazing to see. And it was one of those moments where I realized I just kind of, I'm completely okay with being the least successful McLaughlin sister. <laughs> I am, I have just, <laughs> I have just totally accepted that all yeah. three of them are more brilliant and talented and kind <laughs> and wonderful than I could strive to be. So I just kind of look at them and try to model my life around who, who they are. But yeah, Marissa just was amazing. I mean, on the same stage where they have all these big Hollywood award shows, you know, and her and Cameron totally commanded the entire room. It was amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to go back to one specific word that you said where, Mm -hmm. you know, we interview a lot of families and one of the things that comes out is how different the experience is when it's the oldest of three children who are di- who's ha- receives a diagnosis or the middle child of, of you know, and, and uh, of two children who are really close in age or really far in age. And you're six years older than, than Marissa. Mm-hmm. And you're the first sibling that I can remember using the term caregiver for yourself. And can you talk a little bit about when you started to think of yourself as a caregiver, if it was right away or sort of later on and what, the experience is of being a sibling caregiver for you. Absolutely. I don't know that I started using the word caregiver about myself until everybody around me was using it for me Um, Uh, because it feels weird. It's like, I'm just a sister. I'm just doing sister things. But when those sister things um, include, you know, things like making sure that you're giving them the right amount of medication and the right, at the right time with the right meals and making sure that, you know, you're helping with um, things like personal hygiene and, and mobility and getting into wheelchairs and getting um, their, their braces on and getting them to therapy and getting them to infusion appointments. It, it is a lot like a caregiver. It really does. Doesn't it? And it really took another um, friend of mine. Her name is Kelsey Fowler. Her brother's Micah Fowler, who, was the star of Speechless on ABC. Oh, wow. um, yeah, and it really took, we are, our moms set us up because <laughs> Marissa did an episode of Speechless. And of course I was on set. It was one of my favorite shows. So I was like, I will take her. I volunteer as tribute. <laughs> and I met Micah and I met his mom and she goes, you have to meet my daughter. You have to, because Kelsey is Micah's older sister. She's also a caregiver. And the first time I met Kelsey, we talked for about five hours straight in this little coffee house. And it was that kind of revelation that we both had where I was like, well, you're obviously a caregiver and a guardian. And she was like, well, so are you. And so then I, I started doing, it was about that time when I started doing a lot of um, research into it. And there's actually, there's a few studies that have been done that really show kind of the impact that it, it has on healthy siblings in a family where there's chronically ill siblings mm-hmm. and kind of the, the toll that that takes. And it's the greatest honor and gift and privilege of my entire life to be 
identified as a caregiver for my sisters. That is my favorite thing about myself. And that being said, it's also shaped me in a lot of ways. And you really do have to prioritize, especially with younger siblings. Mallory is between Marissa and Marin. So she's between my two chronically ill sisters. And um, especially with siblings that are so close in age to their chronically ill siblings, you really, really do have to prioritize their own self-care and mental health. Mm-hmm. And um, there's studies being done and there's, there's programs that are being implemented even in children's hospitals. The one, our children's hospital here in LA um, has implemented programs where anytime that you know they see a child in a wheelchair going through the halls and they give them a free teddy bear or a book or a lollipop, whatever, they also now give that to the healthy sibling and who's oh, ever, who's there, you know? And, and that's a huge, it's a huge, it sounds like something that's so little and so small, but mm-hmm. because these siblings, you really are, you know, most of the time, a full-time or part-time caregiver for your siblings. And it's weird because it's like, well, I'm just, you know, being a good sibling, helping out. But when there's chronic illness involved, there's a lot more involved than just like helping somebody make up the bed. It's, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot. Sure. And you mentioned some of the studies and it's sort of indicative of the issue itself, right? Where there's so many more studies about the social and emotional journey of having a diagnosis than there are about the social and emotional journey of being a sibling of someone who does, but of the studies that seem to be happening more and more finally, what are any of them that have resonated? You know, what findings have you come across that have resonated with you where you've thought, yes, that study sort of nailed exactly how I feel as a, you know, a sibling of, of two sisters with diagnoses or vice versa. Are there any where you've thought that's interesting that that's their finding, but that doesn't resonate with my own lived experience. I think there's definitely room for, you know, people to have different experiences from the same type of situation because everybody's going to react to things differently. That's part of, you know, the beauty of, of our community in this chronic illness type of world is that everybody reacts to different diagnoses and different treatments and things differently. For me personally, there is a study. It was actually um, done by a bunch of specialists and really amazing doctors, a few who, who we've actually worked with for years at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Um, and their study and a couple of others just kind of shows that with healthy siblings, there is a, a tendency to end up really struggling with wanting to please everybody around them and there's a struggle about control you can't control your siblings illness you can't control their mobility or lack thereof and there's also a sense of survivor's guilt in a way Mm -hmm. Um, and so what happens is a lot of times that translates to the healthy sibling ending up with a diagnosis of their own something like an eating disorder or some form of even self-harm because you start to feel guilty that your body works and mm-hmm. your siblings doesn't work in the way that you know would help their quality of life be easier. Um, and so there's a sense of guilt about that. There's also a sense of control where you can't control, especially as a sibling and as a young sibling. Now, of course, I can drive my sisters to appointments and I feel like I can help more. But mm-hmm. as you're younger, you really can't control anything. You can help. And you can, you know, help with your siblings, but you have 
no control over being able to do anything that you feel is um, actually taking action, you know? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times that control ends up being placed in places where it's like, well, I'm just going to go extremely overboard in school and I have to make more than straight A's and everything. I have to make Mm -hmm. straight A pluses and everything. Mm -hmm. And, um, or it'll translate to needing control in the form of food and which will go into disordered eating. And so it's, that's why I say it's so important for, I'm a big advocate of counseling and of therapy, I think for everybody, but I think especially for people who spend so much of their time in hospitals and splitting their time between, you know, hospitals and home life and their support system and any type of rare disease on its own is overwhelming. So imagine throwing in like, young kids to that mix and a marriage into that mix. And then these, you know, healthy siblings, it's a lot. So I really, really always encourage families that are beginning on this journey, or even if they've been on it for a few years to really, if you don't have the resources to have a professional therapist or counselor to really talk with each other and keep an open and safe space to just have any open dialogue and conversation. And because there's really, no matter what the healthy child is feeling you have to validate what they're feeling and then help them navigate that it totally makes sense and and one thing it makes me think of and wonder and i can't think of ever coming across any but you mentioned individuals that you would talk to who were siblings Mm of of um kids with diagnoses but i wonder if there's any organization that does exactly what you're describing have you ever come across an organization that was sort of or even just a forum platform for that encourage sort of community just amongst the the siblings themselves i haven't i would love for there to be one um the closest that i've gotten is um, global genes at their summit that was supposed to take place later september I, i believe it's being rescheduled now um but we had talked about having a panel with healthy siblings and their siblings with chronic illness all at the same table with a um, psychologist who has experienced one of the ones who's actually written one of the, the studies that I'm talking about. And I would love for something like that to happen, whether, I mean, now, you know, maybe you could do one over zoom and do it virtually or something, just because I think what I was so amazed at the, one of the reasons that when I met Kelsey, we sat and we talked for five hours with the first day that we met each other, was because we had never had that type of community before. I had never met Mm -hmm. another sibling caregiver before. And um, it's it's really incredible once you start that conversation and you're like, oh, wait, do you also worry about this? Or do you also have this like huge, completely irrational fear? Or do you also, you know, and it's, so it's, it's very, um, it's just incredibly validating and encouraging to be able to have somebody who, who gets it? And that's with anything with life. I think any sure. any type of person on their walk of life, they're going to have something where they feel like it's just so difficult for them to be understood. So when you find somebody who understands what you're coming through and has gone through a similar thing, it's it's just really nice. It's really nice to have that yeah. sense of community. And you know, it's amazing that you're involved in making a difference at that large scale level, in addition to, you know, the, the really active role that you play in your family in particular. And so in the intro, we also mentioned Shane's inspiration. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that organization and, and what uh, has drawn you to them? I started working with Shane's inspiration. I, I don't even know how long ago it's got to be close to 10 years at this point. Um, and actually, you know, we started supporting them without even knowing it. I, we used to go as a family 
to their park in Griffith Park because we just thought it was so cool that they had chairs set up, you know, like swings set up for wheelchairs. And the Mm. entire, it's the whole, their whole mission there is to create accessible playgrounds um, Mm -hmm. that are completely inclusive, which means that it's not just a accessible playground. It doesn't just have stuff that is easy for people who use wheelchairs or mobility equipment to access, but it has things that are fun for kids of all ages. And um, so what we would find is that Mallory could play with Marissa and Marin in a completely accessible and inclusive way. And they were all having equal amounts of fun. It wasn't like, um, you know, one of those places where all of the equipment is for wheelchairs and it's kind of boring and and drab. (laughs) It was really, it was this really cool thing. And they have these themed playgrounds and they go all out with the design. They've now started to include um, cognitive learning really early on in like their, their design of their playgrounds. And now they're all over the entire globe. And um, it's, it's just been so incredible to see them grow and to see how many accessible playgrounds there are. Now you can go to almost, you know, any state in our country and have an accessible, inclusive playground. But it's really cool. Like it's, it's a really, really well designed and they're really fun places um, for adults to play with their kids. One of the stories that I love from Shane's was that there was a, um, a veteran who had, ampu- who had both of his legs amputated and he wasn't able to play with his, his toddler. And then they oh. went to a Shane's Inspiration playground and he was able to like take his kid, you know, on the swings and on the slide and do the whole thing right there with him. And so it's really, I think it really is important to be able to provide some sense of play for people who otherwise, you know, they go to a, a playground and there's full of sand. You can't, do you know how hard it is to roll a wheelchair through sand? It is almost very impossible hard. or like yeah. the mulch stuff is even worse. So being able to just go and have an inclusive, acceptable playground is really, really important for a lot of families. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things we always kind of focus on and, and to wrap up is that idea of all of the all of the different uh, family members and, and perspectives that that uh, travel you know these types of journeys. What would you have told yourself earlier in the process? And similarly, what advice would you have for somebody who who's sort of newly going through this process themselves? And you've already mentioned some really great things, just the the importance of finding somebody else who's going through it and, and sense of community, the role that, that, you know, counseling can play. Is there anything else that you would tell the younger version of yourself about this journey or somebody else who's sort of newly going through it right now? I would, if I could go back in time and I was, um, I was about seven when Marissa got sick and I believe I was 17 or 18 when we got their diagnosis. And if I could go back, I would just tell myself or someone in that position to not worry as much. And that's impossible. It really is. Because when you have somebody that you love, especially somebody that you're a caregiver for, of course, you're going to worry about them. But I really, the times when I look back and I'm, I make me laugh the most and make me the happiest were times when we were able to, um, my sisters got into wheelchair dance a few years ago and they've also gotten to archery. That's how I started shooting to begin with. Oh, wow. And, um, so I, 
I miss, I wish I would have recognized how important it was to just take a step back from all of the worrying and the crying and the being overwhelmed and the lobbying and the advocacy. All of that stuff is important and you need it. But I wish I would have just taken, you know, an hour a day to turn it off and to just sit with them and play a board game or play some music that they like. And we do that a lot more now because now they're all old enough to be able to be like, why are you upset all the time? Let's just have fun. (laughs) And so now I've really been able to establish this, you know, cool older sister, best friend relationship with them. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, I, I definitely know that I, I try to, you know, I'll be like, oh, guys, I, I just did this show. Or I just did this thing. Isn't it so cool? And, you know, of course, they're my sister, so it's not, it's not like that. <laughs> but I, I would go back and just tell anybody that you're going, you're going to worry enough. Trust me, you're going to worry enough. You don't have to um, feel bad for having moments where you're laughing. You mm-hmm. can be, you can have one child in the hospital and leave their hospital room to go home and see the other child and make jokes with them. Mm-hmm. It's okay to experience joy. And as a matter of fact, I would argue that it's necessary and to create joy when you're going through something as traumatic as hospital trips and doctor's appointments and surgeries and procedures and diagnoses. And I think it's so incredibly important to still carve out time for joy. But that was fantastic. It reminds me of one other question, which is, can you think of early on in your journey, anybody who you talked to who was as far down the road as you are now? Did you have that example? I don't think so. I, not that, I mean, I was so young when Marissa was diagnosed. I knew a couple of other people who had a child in their family um, or a young adult in their family who used a wheelchair for mobility, but the diagnoses were never even close to what Marissa's were. And, um, you know, no, it, there was no representation in media at the time. There was no mm-hmm. TV show to turn to. That's what I love about, you know, going back to Micah's show, Speechless. I will, if I'm feeling bummed, I'll just turn it on because it's, it, it does this really beautiful thing of showing very real trials and hardships and blockages that come up when you're dealing with any type of a person in your family having any type of a disability. But they do it in a way that's so real that it is hilarious. And they and it's like you need that. You need that humor. It's about you need that joy to get through anything, really. Mm-hmm. And um, so, no, I, I'm happy now that there is more um, – representation and media and that they're with social media as well. It's fairly simple to find a community mm-hmm. online. Um, and with organizations like sick chicks and global genes and CoChart. chart, has been huge for us because when we started with CoChart, I mean, it was right after we moved to Los Angeles, there was, we didn't know anybody and we definitely didn't know anybody in the chronic illness community. And so it was people that we met through going to these workshops and going through these fun things. And one of the, my, one of the girls' uh, favorite workshops that they did was at Disney Animation with you guys. Oh, yeah. And they met friends there that they are still talking to like once a week. Oh, and, um, and the same thing for my mom, you know, where it's, that's a huge sense of, of community for us. So 
that's what I've been so happy. It's like, I always am referring people that we meet to CoChart because it's like, go, you'll find people who get it. You'll find people who have fun and who are able to like get it and kind of sit in that same place with you without just talking about chronic illness. You're talking mm-hmm. about improv, you're talking about art classes, you're talking about singing, you're talking about music, and all of these different things that you guys provide. And that you, you're the only organization I've found to date that includes healthy siblings. It was never a question. So I, as a matter of fact, when we started with CoChart, one of the first things that we started as a family were music lessons. Oh, nice. And I just kind of, accepted the fact that it was going to just be for Marissa and Marin. Mm -hmm. And then when I got an appointment for a guitar lesson, I was like, Oh, well, but like, how much is it going to be? And, you know, we were really struggling. We had just moved across the country. And I was like, I was like, no, I can't do it. And I remember very vividly my mom looking at me like, no, it's, it's included. It's a part of the program. It's you and Mallory and Marissa and Marin. Uh-huh. And I, I didn't like, I couldn't, it didn't compute in my brain <laughs> because nothing like that had ever happened. And oh, so wow. it's, it's huge that you guys just like, you know, without even thinking about it, it's like, yeah, of course it's the entire family and it's not just the kids, it's the parents as well. And that has just been so huge and so massive. And it's made such an impact on not only me, but everybody I know who I've like referred to you guys and everybody who I, I talk about coach art with, um, it's been a huge thing how family focused it is because it really gets all of you together in a safe space to talk and have fun and not have to think about your diagnosis, not have to think about how you have to be at the hospital for infusions next week. You can just kind of get together and and have a sense of community. Yeah. Well, Madison, thank you so much. This has been such an amazing conversation and can't wait to put it out into the world and uh, just so so appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, I'm so happy. I can't wait for it to be safe enough for uh, the CoChart community to get back together. I'm so excited to see everybody. Absolutely. I'm ready. (laughs) Uh, Us too. Us too. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. You can find more content like this at theupbeat.cochart.org, where we have blog posts, podcasts, and YouTube clips, as well as a Facebook group that you can join and share your own helpful advice with other families who are dealing with social and emotional questions about kids going through chronic illness. So we hope to see you there. Thanks so much.